So here is a trigger warning for today's episode. We're going to be discussing addiction. And we're going to be discussing it in a way you may not have thought about before. This episode could get you asking the questions, are we all addicts and are we in denial? I have with me Jesse Harless, best-selling author of Smash Your Comfort Zone with Cold Showers and his latest brilliant book, If Not You, Then Who, which is out now. Jesse is a leader in trauma-informed healing and a facilitator in addiction recovery and holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counselling. Jesse is going to be opening up about his own addiction issues. This is going to be a very powerful, raw and open conversation and it will challenge your preconceived ideas around the subject of addiction and it could be the wake-up call you need to take action. You are listening to the Mindset Change Podcast and I'm your mindset coach, Paul Shepard. If you're new to the show, welcome. Please subscribe to help the show grow. It really does make a difference. And more importantly, you won't miss another episode. If you are struggling with any form of addiction, please refer to the show notes for resources and help. And welcome, Jesse Harless. Paul, great to see you. Nice to see you again. We've got a lot to talk about. I have listened to your book, If Not You, Then Who? And my jaw was on the floor with how open and honest you are about your struggles with addiction. And obviously for the listeners of this show, because the way that you talk about addiction isn't in its normal terms. This is what I've been picking up. And I just wanted to ask you, directly what is addiction and are we all affected yeah i mean i think to me this is a, a one of the most important questions um i spent time thinking about since addiction has really rippled throughout my whole life my family's lives and my friends lives and i think at this stage of the game everyone's lives that i've i've met and i think at this stage i know almost anyone i talk to knows someone who struggled with addiction in their family or friends loved ones. But I would even take it further to say like every person has addiction. And if we reframe addiction as, you know, any behavior, even our thinking uh, and our emotions, um, getting addicted to our emotions, certain emotions that maybe are uh, causing us to play smaller or avoid our pain or control others. I think these can be addictions because they lead to harm and they lead to self-harm. And so, you know, so these behaviors, these, th- this, these thinking, these actions, this, these types of, you know, things that I think people don't think of as addiction, like our thoughts and emotions are part of the conversation around addiction and, and maybe a very important one because why does someone drink every day? Why do they choose to, you know, shoot fentanyl? And, you know, is it as simple as they're uh, just an addict and they can't control it? Or is there something deeper uh, as in emotional addictions? And then underneath that, of course, there's going to be layers of you know, fears. And then under that could be layers of trauma and causal reasons for that. And I think that's what I found throughout my journey. So what is an emotional addiction? Just to be clear for anyone listening. Yeah, I mean, emotional addiction, and I think if you get into like 
even Joe Dispenza's work, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, he has a section in his book where he actually talks about emotional addiction. And, you know, I didn't mention this in my last book because I was still learning about what, what this is. But I would say like an example of an emotional addiction would be uh, something of a thought, an intrusive thought that you are having that you are really just putting to maybe on others or something of like procrastination to start to play bigger in your life. And you're starting to just allow this thought to say, well, they did it. I can't do this because of X, Y, and Z, because of my dad, because of my looks, because of whatever. And I think that there's you know, that can become an addiction because the chemical that's released of not doing it, which could be this uh, avoidance, but that can actually turn into something that we become addicted to because it makes us play smaller. It keeps us in a depressive state. It keeps us in anxiety and we can get addicted to the depressive and the depressive state and anxiety. So that's one way to look at an emotional addiction. And obviously you can have the flip side of an emotional addiction where it's you're addicted to talking about your dream, talking about what you're going to do, talking and telling stories about where you're going to be someday and never get there because that dopamine that's released in that moment from talking about what you might do becomes the addiction without ever, ever having to take action. I can really relate to that. So many dreams and it is enjoyable to talk about them, isn't it? But the actual doing, we sometimes just leave to one side and we just get involved in the expression of our, of our thoughts, of our dreams. And something else you reminded me of was the addiction. I think sometimes people get addicted to worry, not necessarily to the, um, to the actual thought itself, which can trigger alarm within the body, but the addiction to the relief that they can feel when the worry is, isn't going to happen. Because, I mean, most of our worries don't even happen. So there's that instant, oh, yes, um, it's not come to pass. And people can get often trapped in that worry cycle, which can feel addictive. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I grew up in a household like that, you know, for a good reason. You know, my dad left at four, single mother raising three boys on her own. You know, worry became really a, a go-to uh, a go-to place. And it was a coping mechanism. It was survival mm. mechanism. It was being in the sympathetic nervous system. It was, thank God that happened. Who knows what would have happened if there wasn't that. So in some ways, addictions can serve as catalysts to not cause more harm, which might seem strange because that worry was keeping maybe my mom from taking even more drastic actions and, 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 and harming herself with uh, more substances or just, you know, what it, what you go through with a, a a single mom raising three boys. I mean, I have friends who have uh, who 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 raise young children that have each other, and I see how much work that is. And so I can only imagine what my mom was going through. So that that worry, even when we were grown up, and even into today, still shows up. Why does it still show up? And that's mm. the grand question to me. It's like, why are you still worrying? We are all grown up. We are all living our lives, and we are living them you know, in ways that are more secure and abundant than we ever could imagine that we could have been. And there's still worry. So it's like, oh, and you know, you could say, oh, well, that's motherly worry or, but I would argue that some of that is, but some of that is because if you, if you continue to worry like that and live in that, you know, that sympath sympathetic nervous system, there is a payoff to it. There's a payoff to that. And 
The payoff could be to really not taking care of yourself or really not taking care of things. And then that's one way to maybe get attention or, mm. you know, make sure you're not forgot about by putting that onto others and kind of caretaking. So yeah, it's I kind of a deeper it, yeah. dive into. Yeah, no, I, 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 it, it, it's that worry gives us a false sense of control, which can, that can feel addictive to feel that like I have control. And then you get the relief from the, the worry not even happening, which again, it's, we can become addicted to that. I think there's all sorts of nuances to it, isn't there? Um, you, you mentioned growing up in your household, something you mentioned in your book, which I'd not thought about since I did that, was I was an incessant thumb sucker. And um, I've never, I don't know why, never thought about it. I never associated that with being anxious as a child, which I was. Never associated and there it was in your book. You mentioned that as well. That your first, your first addiction or your first uh, attachment. How would you? How would you class that? Yeah, I, I would. Um, <clears throat> no doubt, it was a coping mechanism for my emotions and pain. And I started thumb sucking in the womb, so I, I, I would say that you know my first addiction was thumb sucking, and then you know, the, the pain and the stress I felt energetically around me with the fighting and the things that were happening and the addiction of my dad and all the things that were happening in the household from one to three before he left. It's, you know, thank God I was sucking my thumb. And, you know, and then eventually what happened was, uh, now I'm 10 years old and I'm still sucking my thumb. And this is when I became a functional thumb sucker. You know, I was functioning in my world at 10, but I was hiding mm. this addiction of thumb sucking from others even though at home, my brothers would be relentless towards me about it. And there was a lot of guilt and shame. So this one thing that brought me relief and pleasure also brought me a lot of shame. So this, you know, this functional thumb sucking uh, turned against me and that, that pain of embarrassment eventually caused me to stop. And I've heard of people thumb sucking right into their forties and fifties. And I, and in some ways I'm like, mm. wow, like that's actually, that's better than I would say, you know, drinking alcohol in my opinion, um, you know, or, yeah. you know, you know, maybe smoking cigarettes and, and, and falling into other behaviors. So I'm like, and I'm, but I'm sure there's guilt and shame in that as well. So I'm, I'm grateful you brought that up because I think, uh, you know, if we don't talk about something, it never comes to the surface and, and comes out of this shadow part of ourselves. So I think the thumb sucking is, uh, I think, more apparent than uh, I believed in the past for others. Yeah, I, I, I was shamed into stopping. And uh, well, I also, it also produced a problem with my teeth. And it was one of these things which I don't remember when I stopped. It, just, it began to just happen. It suddenly just felt odd in my mouth. My thumb th felt strange. And then I remember something happened and then it, it began to, I began to move away with it. But the anxiety and stress I was feeling didn't change. That was, I was looking for other ways to cope. And I think that's when I began to use food and unhealthy and, and habits to try and make myself feel better. Um, going back to your to what was happening to you and what led you to, um, to be a leader in your field with addiction recovery, what, what then happened for you when you were growing up as a functional thumb sucker? What then happened afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I found other ways to, um, relieve my pain to numb out. You know, we all find our ways to numb out. And for me, thumb sucking was a good way. And so again, like you, the pain of embarrassment, um, I stopped. And then eventually I found other ways to cope, which was um, the internet. 
And this is in the early, uh, this is probably 96 or 90, uh, 95, you know, I, I fell into online pornography really earlier days and, you know, found ways to, to find it and on the internet. And uh, that became my next thing, my next way to escape, to feel connection and bonding through a screen mm. and um, really isolate. You know, isolation is a big one. You know, that's probably the biggest thing with addiction is the lack of connection probably is the thing. And so isolation on the computer where I was finding um, a way to connect and bond was through internet pornography at, at that age, 12, 11, 13. And so that was kind of the next thing. And then that led to shame because I was hiding it from my mom. I was hiding it from my friends. And then of course, you know, I, I remember like getting caught one time and the shame of that and just, you know, but I, I kept hiding it. And that kind of led into when I got into high school, this, this attempt to be this person um, that I wasn't, and then that getting rejected, and then eventually in high school, uh, just giving up. You know, eventually by like end of junior year, and then by senior year, I'd given up all sports. I was, I was, I played sports. You know, I played football and volleyball and lacrosse and all these baseball. And by junior year, I just quit all the sports, and I started to isolate even more into online games. And now today, you can become a professional online gamer and get paid for mm-hmm. it. But you know, at that time, it was. Um, you know, I felt more shame around my online gaming addiction, porn addiction, and I would attract people like we all do. I attract people who did the same thing. And, um, yeah, eventually, you know, uh, there was an intervention my senior year cause I was late so many times and I know there's no doubt I had depression, but you know, I didn't, I, I it just wasn't talked about in my household. We didn't talk about, Oh, you, you know, you might have depression and your dad was an alcoholic. Like it was just, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about money. We didn't, it's just like, just, just get out there and do it. And it's like, uh, you know, it wasn't talked about and it's, it's not to blame anyone. Cause there was, a, there was this, as is not taught in schools. This is not, ta- wasn't taught in middle school, wasn't taught in high school of how to deal with emotions and addictions and, you know, mental health. And, um, I think now maybe it might be coming out a little more, but, um, especially after the pandemic, you know, the last three years, look at the mm. decline in mental health, the suicide rates, the addiction, the fentanyl overdoses, the, you know, a hundred thousand overdoses in the last year, just from wow. opioids. So, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely things that are coming to the surface, but yeah. Um, I'm not sure how deep you want me to go, but from there I got into college and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I found ways to numb out. I had every intention of passing all my classes. And, uh, but as soon as I was, you know, jumping into cannabis and occasional pills and alcohol, I just started to, I failed all my classes that first semester. I failed, I failed a class that's called intro to college. You just sit on the grass outside and then you just like wave your hand and say, Hey, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And you pass it. And I, I failed that class. So I failed all of them. And then, um, you know, that sort of led to, you know, a lot of shame. I flunked out of college, came back home, lived with my mom. And then, you know, um, a year later, uh, my father passed away from alcoholism. So he was not in my life. He left at four years old, was in a car accident, put him in a coma for 22 days. He survived it, but had permanent brain damage. So we didn't talk from age four to 20 more than maybe two or three times. And he wasn't present when he did talk to me that two, three times that whole time. But that built a big resentment up towards my mother, a mm. huge resentment towards okay. my mom for not 
you know, doing more effort into me connecting with him. And, you know, so that was, so when he passed away at 20 and I found out in such an, uh, uh, such a, a way that was also very intense, uh, where, you know, I came home and my mom was hysterical and told me he passed away, but it wasn't the death that he was hysterical. She was hysterical about, it was about the, the family saying, hey, we need to take care of bills and da, da, da. And so I came into this just chaos. And then I, that night I, I went out and for the first time used cocaine. And it was the first time in my life where I actually felt love. Literally, it was the first time I ever felt like what I thought love felt mm-hmm. like. It was when I was bonding with these women and my best friend on cocaine the night my dad died. And so that would be something I would chase for the next several years. And what, what, helped, what happened next? I mean, did you, what take, took you to where you are now? I mean, obviously something happened for you to begin to, to work on this, but what, was it hitting rock bottom? Was, it, was there a, a you know, revelation? What helped you? Yeah. So what ended up happening is the people I was running with to get these drugs eventually, you know, got in trouble. So I kind of cold turkeyed off of, um, and I eventually got into heroin. So I cold turkeyed off of heroin and cocaine. And, um, and what ended up happening was I replaced it with alcohol. That lasted for a few years until I could find a way to order prescription medication myself. So prescription opioids myself. And once I found how to do that and not have to go to the quote unquote, the streets to get it, I was like, oh, no one's going to get in my way. And, and by the way, I was what's called the functioning addict, right? The functioning addict. I had a full-time job. <clears throat> I hit it. No one knew. Mm-hmm. And um, I was actually quite successful at that job in sales. And then eventually at uh, 22, I started to mix all kinds of things, cocaine and the pills. And I, I started to like, my, heart, my health started to decline. You know, it, was, it was just, there was a, an overdose moment. There was lots of blood. It just became this, it became apparent. And then I couldn't show up for work. And that's when I knew I was probably going to die at that point. And I came back home. Um, you know, I was living in Florida in Orlando. I came back to New Hampshire and I told, uh, I didn't tell anyone actually what happened except my brother. So I was going to keep this secret, this addiction from my family. And I told my brother, Hey, I have a little problem with cocaine. No big deal. I'm going to get it under control. And within three days coming back, I was already back at it. So I was in big trouble. And then a week later, I was arrested. Uh, (laughs) So uh, a week later, I would get that um, moment of clarity uh, when I was arrested at a, um, well, I was was arrested by, um, you know, federal agents. And uh, that, that became the catalyst for me to be forced, thank God though, forced into what at the time was available for my recovery journey, which was mandatory paper signed uh, AA meetings and, but no treatment, no sobro living. It was, you're going to work full time. You're going to go to these meetings. Good luck to you. And we're going to monitor you the whole time. Cause I, I ended up not going to jail. I stayed on probation, but mm. you know, a lot of details, but the, the reality is it was, it was a miracle that I didn't go to prison and that I was able to go to these meetings, work full time. And I started to get my life back on track. Yeah, so you you did the because you talk about all this in your book, and this is what I was astounded when I was reading it of just what you'd been through and how you avoided going to prison, um, which was a miracle. It was just like thank God because what happened next was the way that you what triggered because obviously you you did the twelve the twelve step program, 
was that was it that that triggered your um the, the work that you did now what happened next yeah i mean there were so many catalysts there were so many things that happened like mm. when i was you know you know kind of stopped <laughs> with the arrest into my 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 path of destruction i was blazing with addiction and then facing these you know these charges I was required to go to the meeting. So I went there and I found a, a mentor there, or what could be called a sponsor. And then I found a mentor outside of that. I found a male mentor who is not only an incredible pianist, he was a pastor and he took me under his wing. And so I also joined a men's group. So I had not only the 12-step fellowship, I had a men's group. I had this mentor outside of that. I also started journaling every day. My mentor said to me, journal your journey every single day. Just do it every day. And he knew intuitively like this could be helpful for this person, which he t- which turned out to be very right for who I am and 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 that type of um that type of a therapeutic um healing, which journaling can be. And mm-hmm. so I just started to change my habits. I started to change the people around me. I started to change the habit of being myself, right? And so I and, and not only that, at my job, I was working full time and I was, I was really doing well at my job in sales. And then I went back to college as well. So I, I went all in, you know, and it's not always easy to do that right in the beginning, but that was the key. There was a lot of pressure on me. So I, 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 I got through it with that. And of course I had a spiritual life I was developing. I was developing this connection. And so all these things combined led to me not going to prison because I was showing them through my actions that why would you put someone away who's doing all these things right? And it just so happened, I believe that this judge had a son or someone in recovery that understood and took compassion on me and gave me that chance. And then I took full advantage of that and continued on the journey with mentors and with learning about um, you know, this modality of, of, of recovery, 12 steps. And then also um, really focusing on like mentorship in my job and then eventually getting my undergrad in psychology. And then, and, and by the way, <clears throat> the reason I went to psychology path and got my master's in clinical mental health counseling is because the, I had a court appointed therapist, Bonnie Halsey, who held the deepest space I've ever felt from a human and just her being and looking at me without saying words was healing me and la- allowing me to talk through my stories and trauma. So that was in the first two weeks of my recovery. And I got that for nine years. So I was very blessed that I was able to continue on with her. And she inspired me to go on to become a clinical mental health counselor myself, which you know, kind of is getting closer to where we are today, where I pivoted into more of a of a guide and a coach for people. I didn't want to do direct therapy. I, I, my first internship was working in a drug court, um, which is a, a really hard hit population here in New Hampshire with um, homelessness and you know also having uh, addiction to uh, fentanyl and and just really um, tragic and and you know that kind of opened my eyes to harm reduction models that i didn't was wasn't taught and knew about and so it opened my eyes to new possibilities for how people can find care it's it's an amazing um story of how you've got to be where you are and one thing i really liked when when i was reading your book was the way that you talked about addiction was for you a bit of a gift 
almost like a, you call it an awakening. Can That's you explain more about that? Because I, I relate to that with my anxiety disorder. It's been a total gift, though at the time I would have done anything not to have it <laughs> and I've done anything not to get rid of it. It was very painful, but it, it's given me so much. And you, you kind of implicated that with your, uh, with your addiction. Yeah. I mean, you hear like on the other side of a breakdown is a breakthrough and through this incredible journey of the, the stress, the trauma, the addiction, the arrest, um, the, the harm it caused even to my family of that going through that emotionally, psychologically, um, spiritually going through that. Um, on the other side of that was an incredible gift and that gift continues to this day. It continues to bring abundance to my life because when you realize that the guy who's homeless on the street drinking himself to death or shooting fennel is you, when you realize that that could have been me if I had those circumstances, there's a level of compassion and an awareness in your life. And that's what ended up happening for me. I just started to realize like, wow, like, I'm super blessed that I am able to now be on the other side of this, which led to nourishment and health and mm. exercise and habits and cold showers and all these habits that I have developed because of the relentlessness to put my health and wellness as a number one priority. And including that health and wellness for me was abstaining from drinking alcohol and abstaining from these substances like cocaine and heroin and these substances, that that would have never happened if I didn't have the life I had and had the traumas I had. And now today, being able to write a book about it and speak all over about this and facilitate this message, it has given me this purpose at 39 to be like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Not only is it helping others, I've been able to take the skills and training I've learned to build more leaders, more leaders to do this work in this space. It's like, how is this even happening? And that's why I called <laughs> my book, If Not You, Then Who? I don't know how else to describe it. Like I, yeah. I was like an introvert. I was a empath introvert. I had social anxiety, general anxiety disorder. Like I couldn't, I wasn't a speaker, you know, I was, I was in a shell of myself. And coming out and telling my story over and over and over, and then finally coming out of these basement halls and telling it to the world and not being ashamed to tell my story despite judgment and losing the job. That's why I became an entrepreneur. It's like, well, I don't got to worry about losing my job if I'm telling my story about addiction recovery because I blaze my own path. And now I feel bad and sad that people are not able to share their story of addiction and come out and even ask for help at the threat of losing their career. And we need to change mm. that. That needs to be changed. Thank God for recovery-friendly workplaces and these organizations and movements that are happening to bring in addiction awareness into companies because everyone should feel safe to ask for help and not just rely on the employee assistance program, the EAP program. There mm. should be resources internally. There should be recovery coaches to be able to, and I know I'm shooting all over myself, but I'm <laughs> telling you, these are things that are needed, especially after the pandemic. Oh my Lord. You know, there was a stat about like 67% of managers are not well equipped to help to provide mental health, uh, mental well, uh, wellness services or mental health services, like 67% after the pandemic. So, you know, this is a real opportunity. And, and, and that reminds me, you're doing some work with eye care at the moment. Is that, is that what you're, is that a similar thing? 
Yeah. So the work with eye care is a organization started by Dr. Jean LaCour. And yeah. the way I found Dr. Jean LaCour is actually ironically through a documentary uh, with Jack Canfield. And um, she started this organization 26 years ago and they've trained over 40,000 uh, coaches um, to which are certified professional recovery coaches. And this organization is a nonprofit that uh, stands for the International Center for Addiction Recovery Education. And what they do is they train certified professional recovery coaches that are ICF, so the International Coach Federation, mm. um, uh, ICF credits that can go out into businesses or into the world one-on-one with this professional certification and provide the integration as people come through 12 steps, as they come out of treatment centers, as they struggle silently and suffer silently in businesses, you have these professional recovery coaches that can help guide the journey for three months, six months, two years, five years. So they provide that professional training And so, yeah, I actually run a training with them called Certified Facilitator in Addiction Awareness, which I'm very passionate about training facilitation Mm. to train people to be able to not just talk at people. And as my mentor, John Berghoff says, instead of being the sage on the stage, being the guide on the side, and that's, and that resonates with me. And that's why I love facilitating and speaking. I like too, but I like to facilitate tools and insight and really moving the energy and building number one psychological safety. This sounds amazing. And um, I really like, you mentioned John Berghoff. I, I really love the exchange approach. And it's something that, uh, that's where I've met you. And it's the, the training that I'm using to create the uh, the anxiety coaching groups and the, uh, the self-awareness and mindset coaching groups for the future. Um, and I just want to say thank you for everything that you're doing with um you know the way that you've transformed something that you were struggling with you've transformed it um as into a gift but also something that you're changing so many lives with what advice would you give to anyone who's listening to this who has got secret addictions struggles they've got the shame going on so they might not be reaching out for help yet uh, what advice would you give to someone who's listening to this right now and thinking, I, I should be doing something about this? Yeah, you know, Paul, there's there's never been more people than that position right now. Um, I think that, you know, every person is different and they all find their different paths to recovery. But I would say that if if I were just to give one thing to say to someone is if you're listening to this podcast is to reach out. Reach out to me, reach out to Paul, ask for help. We will, we will get you in the right place. We, there's plenty of opportunities, no matter where you are financially, no matter what, there is help. So reach out, you know, connection is critical. So reach out, ask for help, and we will we'll guide you into that place and of a place wherever you're at, meeting you where you're at and to the next part of your journey. Yeah, I think reaching out is so important, but yeah, people often procrastinate about that because it's a shame side of things isn't it and it's amazing it's 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 sad to see because again we do live in a culture especially for men that says you should be able to sort these things out by yourself and even anxiety and addiction may trick people into thinking i should sort this all out by myself which is just not a great idea Absolutely. I mean, we, we live in a toxic culture in many ways and there's toxic masculinity that has been taught and instilled in many ways. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of women who struggle with addiction, of course, but there's a lot of men who suffer with the shame and they say, well, I just need to toughen up. 
And it's like, mm. that's that shame spiral and cycle that to me, it becomes an addiction, that thought, that thought pattern. You mentioned the toxic culture. I think uh, just listening to you uh, talking on a podcast and, and just getting and to talk to you in general, we do live in a, in a toxic culture that is promoting addiction, whether it be gaming, whether it's with food, whether it's with entertainment of some sort, screens. There's so much that we're being drawn into that can create unhealthy habits that we can we feel compelled to keep repeating. I think my phone is one thing that I, I know most people might be able to relate to is how we just pick it up, even though we're not even, there's nothing to actually look at. It's just an instant habit. And I, I often think, why am I lifting up my phone? Where's this coming from? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, one of the things I struggled with was with texting, you know, texting blew up over the last decade or so, but we didn't have texting before, you know, in relationships. But nowadays, you know, one of the things I had to work through was when someone didn't text me back, it, it actually would trigger my original father wound abandonment trauma, just a simple text, which wasn't that simple not responding, someone not responding for 24 hours or eight hours would trigger deep seated stuff that had nothing to do with them. And so I had to work through that. And again, getting that instant reply, getting that instant like on Instagram, getting that's that dopamine hit that Mm. is part of this addiction cycle. And people don't think of that. They might think of it as, well, that's a, just a bad habit. Well, okay. I actually look at it as if that goes on long enough, what else can I do to get instant gratification from? So I think it can move from one thing to another. So to me, it's like, how do we break that pattern, right? How do we, okay, I need to disrupt this pattern. I need to disrupt this addiction. And, you know, obviously there's many ways to do that. And I think one, as you know, for me, has been cold showers. You know, that's been one that has definitely been a disruptor of my patterns, mindfulness, Mindfulness meditation, huge one, breathing, breath work, somatic healing. Um, so yeah, so just to give some some on the other side of things of a solution to this is, you know, you you find your way. But for me, some of these addictions are not going to change overnight. But by having these new habits that we're replacing them with slowly but surely cycling through. You know, I meet people all the time. They say, oh, you know, uh, let me give you an example. I had a friend who said, I'm drinking Coca-Cola every single night and I love it. I just want to keep drinking it. And every Mm. time I stop, I come back to it. And he's like, when I try to get help, you know, it's like I try stop and then I come back to it. I'm like, why are you stopping? He's like, what? I'm like, why are you stopping? Why don't you, you know, how many do you drink a day? Two? We'll cut it back to one. And then eventually one go to half a cup and then find a replacement, find a maple syrup tonic. Like, mm. why are you stopping abruptly? Like your brain, your habits, I mean, these are instilled in your cells at this point. So by cycling through and finding a way, you know, th- these are just ways to look at addiction in a way where it's like, we, we, we look at absence, like stop, stop it, stop everything. And yeah, it's yeah. like, what happens is is this rush of pressure and stress and detox that happens where I think we could take a more, uh, let's just say, compassionate harm reduction approach, even to things that are related to diet. Yeah, I, I think the diet thing I was just about to mention, I, oft, I often hear from people how Monday, I am going to, that's it, no more junk food, no more sugar, no more alcohol, no more caffeine, all of these things. And uh, again, it's, and you it's just such a big thing to to subject the body and mind to with this abrupt, you know, which often could be a harmful stop. Whereas 
just making small tiny steps in in you know changing habits is much more effective but we have this instant need to want those results now to feel like we have control now maybe what would you, what would your take be on it yeah and and by the way i am someone who is an extreme i'm an entrepreneur i have started things that have been harmful and stopped them abruptly i've been cold turkey in things since i was mm-hmm. in my early 20s with hardcore addiction so i get that there is for some it's a stop i have to stop and do this, but that's not everyone. There is so many people struggling, suffering in silence because they've tried that it doesn't work and it keeps continuing to cycle through and cycle through. And so, yes, for those of you out there that are just like, well, I just stopped and it's been 20 years. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. wonderful. There's millions of people who cannot do that. So we need to look at other means of how do we actually help those people. And those people, what I'm finding out is a lot of people. And so looking at things a little differently, reframing to say, hey, instead of causing self-violence towards myself and shame, let me try to find ways that I can sort of find my own cycle and way of tapering off this that that's true for me. And let me learn from people who mm-hmm. who, who, who might have done the same. And so um, that's why I'm so inspired to honestly write my next book. It's going to be about this. It's going to be about this way that we shame ourselves and, and more models of harm reduction and finding ways to, to, to get out of this trauma cycle. You know, it's this trauma cycle that we're in that we're, we're not coming out of because honestly, we don't have the information. I don't know what, where is that information to learn about how we can approach addiction in that way, right? So I think mm. this is just a reframing and just to put it out there that, yeah, if you are trying to stop something abruptly and then you're coming back to it again and again, like, Maybe take a step back and say, you know, maybe let me cut this back. Let me cut it back and then let me start to let me start to tune into my own innate wisdom and see where it leads me into maybe there's something else and start to replace that habit. I'm not saying replace cocaine with fentanyl. I'm saying, you know, mm-hmm. looking at like maybe it's uh, Coca-Cola, but you're now like, you know what? I went to the natural food store. I saw this like maple syrup soda. Let me try that. Oh, I don't, I hate the taste of that. Instead of being like, I hate the taste. I'm going back to Coke. (laughs) Nothing's going to stop me. So it's like, instead of that, why don't you take a breather and practice some deep breaths and start to maybe learn more about the innate wisdom of breathing and mindfulness and start to learn these modalities so that you can ease in when those thoughts come and start to be like, oh, that's not me. (laughs) I'm not that. But okay, and be start to be compassionate towards yourself, and then eventually cycling through. Maybe you get some, and if we're going to stay with the Coca Cola, you know, maybe you start to bring in some raw medicinal cacao from Costa Rica, or you bring in something that you know actually doesn't have caffeine, but it has a lot of energy. Maybe you find replace, you know, other ways to. Because why are you really drinking the Coca-Cola? We're never getting to the root cause mm. of why are you doing that to begin with? True. And people will say to me, I'm not addicted to the caffeine. I'm just, I love the taste. It's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> You're no, It's not the taste. You love the buzz. It's that buzz. It gets you to numb out. You can numb out and move on to the next part of your day. So yes, I'm not judging anyone who drinks caffeine or any of that. I'm just mm. saying, it's just to be aware, be aware you know, when you're drinking three cups and four cups, like, why are you doing this? Why are you drinking that soda? And now bringing it up and saying, I wish I didn't do this. Well, so it's like, 
let's just approach this in a way that can be more rational and more uh, compassionate towards ourselves and be able to then ask ourselves, well, I wonder what else is possible. And then again, finding a way to cycle into something else that yeah. is to me a way to look at harm reduction. Definitely. How, um, uh, this is such great advice. How important do you think emotional and nervous system regulation is in all of this? Because that, that's something I really could have done with being taught at school, how to manage emotions, how to manage my nervous system. Um, you do mindfulness, you do heart math. Um, if anyone's not looked at heart math, I only re- discovered it recently. It's fantastic. Uh, I love the coherence work. Um, what, you know, how important is it to be able to regulate our emotions and nervous system when it comes to things like addiction or trying to numb ourselves out and with habits? Yeah, I think we're seeing that come out more and more, this word regulation or self-regulation. Mm-hmm. It's becoming like a buzzword. We're starting to hear okay. it more and more. And I, I, think it's, I think it's incredibly important because as we learn more about our nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and and you know, this is really the body, you know, as we, we hear, like the body keeps the score, right? That famous book, it's like, yeah, yeah. The, the, where is the trauma going? It's not just in your head, it's in the body. So as we step into these practices such as breathing and breathing into the body, and then with something like heart math, we're breathing into the heart, literally, mm. we're breathing into the heart of the inner chest area. And now we're bringing our focus down into the body. And now we're finding through science and these, you know, studies of the heart that what does this do? It affects heart rate variability. And then what does that do? It releases certain hormones and it releases certain chemicals to start to change uh, our heart rate variability and to come into more coherent patterns of appreciation, of, Mm. of even neutrality. So we can go from frustration and anger simply by taking a few minutes to draw our focus into the heart with deeper breathing. Just that alone, heart-focused breathing can start to put us into this place of what can be called personal coherence, which is an optimal state, which the heart, the mind, and emotions are aligned and in sync. And mm-hmm. so now we're seeing this through this research of heart math and, and, and others to see that you know this is a really incredible tool when it comes to addiction and mental health and being able to self-regulate on your own. And so that's, um, I think, a really critical piece that we, uh, at this stage of the game, with especially coming through the pandemic, is to really take a hold of how am I treating my nervous system? Because the nervous system plays a huge role and the catalyst of why that person's drinking Coca-Cola, why mm. that person is having the worry addiction, why that person is doing the negative side of caretaking, caretaking people's emotions when they don't even want to be caretake. No one wants that energy, but we're doing it over and over. And so a lot of times our nervous system is dysregulated, you know, in our set point, which could be called like homeostasis or the homeo, you know, homeostatic set point, or uh, this, this is. Uh, something where our normal state of being, our baseline, may be in a state of heightened nervousness and anxiety. This is what we've mm. been used to. We've been in yeah. the survival mindset since we've been a child. So by getting into these somatic practices, self-regulation, heart breathing, 
There's so many, even yoga can be extremely helpful for people. And some people don't like yoga. So there you can find movement practices. We are practicing movement and learning about moving the body while breathing mindfully. These could, you can go outside and take your shoes off and put them in the grass and start to breathe deeply with the sun. And all of a sudden you start to notice a change in your nervous system. So there's, there's, there's so many ways to do it without any money involved and being mm, able to fine. get back to this and, and really resetting that baseline and because, you know, so now your baseline, instead of being at a eight out of 10 on the scale of survival mode and nervousness, maybe you got it down to a six because you took some time to do deep breathing for two minutes or three minutes. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a critically important. Yeah, I, it's what helped me. It's what helped me realizing that my anxiety wasn't all in my head. My body was begging me for help and reducing the alarm system in, in the body made such a big difference. And it also enabled me to think, to be able to think a bit more clearly about my thought processes, to become aware of my thoughts. Because if, I, if I'm not by, by, by being not aware of my thoughts, I was my thoughts, which that's not a very mindful place to be. I was stuck in the past or the future, never quite present. And doing embodiment work, doing breath work and mindfulness work enabled me to be able to see my thoughts for what they were. I just, at the time, completely oblivious. Yeah. And I mean, as we just continue to, you know, if you're in the world of personal growth and you're, and you're exploring, you're going to see, you know, they say 80% of your thoughts are negative. We have what, 10 to 60,000 thoughts a day and 80% are negative. I mean, if this is true, then, uh, you know, I think that there's a critical importance for to take a really hard look at how are we nourishing ourselves and how are we nourishing mm. our nervous system with uh, self-regulation practices. Brilliant. Um, Jesse, you've been an absolute, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Uh, so much gold for anyone who's listening. Um, how can people find you if they want to reach out? I'm going to put your details in the show notes, but for anyone just listening on the, on the hoof, um, how can people find you? Yeah, just can go to right to my website, jessieharless.com and uh, reach out, please reach out. And, and I mean it, like really reach mm -hmm. out. If there's someone on this show and they're like, oh, uh, I'm really struggling, I'm not sure what to do, send me a message. I respond back to every person and um, love to direct you in the, in, in the right place. Like I had mm -hmm. so many people helping me do that, do the same thing. Um, or if you want to reach out and learn more about anything we talked about or the work I'm doing today with uh, f facilitation and training in companies and health and wellness programs, yeah, just, I would say jesseharless.com. Brilliant. Again, I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing, because as I said, I'm just getting an idea of addiction isn't my area of expertise or anything like that. You know, I specialize in anxiety, but I really am seeing a change in the world in regards to how addiction is manifesting and your work has never been more important than now. Um, so I just want to say thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an incredible pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this powerful conversation with Jesse Harless. Please do read his book, If Not You, Then Who? And do reach out for any advice you need if you are struggling with addiction. It could be the best act of self-love you can give yourself. It's a big step, but Jesse and myself can support you with the next steps to take so you can get your life back on track. 
Your ego may try to stop you though, as it's frightened of being vulnerable and opening up, but you can override that and begin to take back control. Check out the episode, Is Your Ego Making You Anxious? for some context. Please share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from hearing this conversation. Also, if you feel like it, share the love with a review. It would be most appreciated. And more importantly for today, stay awake, stay aware and make today incredible.